We are in part 14 of a series we've been calling Discovering the Kingdom. And you're like, number 14, man, I can't catch up. Sure you can. We're going to bring you right up to speed and you'll be able to cruise on with us. But I'm also going to show you fill in the blank here in a moment. So if you had a handout that was given to you at the front door, you may want to take a look at that. Because I want to begin our time with a couple thoughts. Eternal life speaks much more to the quality of life than the longevity. Here's what I mean. We think of eternal life as, oh, when I die, I'm going to live forever, and we think of duration. I would suggest to you that the duration is simply a factor of the quality. See, Eternal life does not begin when we die. Eternal life begins the moment that we are connected to our God. The moment we become Christians, the quality of our life shifts. Now, all human beings are built to live forever. We will either be eternally with God or eternally separate from God. But if you are eternally with God, that is the very source of life. That means that the moment you connect with him on this planet, your quality of life shifts into something supernatural. It says that he is now your father. You are now his child. How do we know that? I actually cited it in the Easter message. John 1 tells us this. Jesus' best friend said this. He said, the word of God, which is a dramatic way to talk about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Even though he came to those which were his own, meaning the Jewish people, they did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are not merely normal and human, we are children of God. That means that we have a different relationship with our creator. That means that now the Holy Spirit dwelling within us means we have an attachment to heaven, a whole different quality of existence. We are now a conduit for what God wants to do in this world. We use the phrase, the church is the body of Christ, meaning the head is up in heaven. We are now the body carrying out what the head wants to do. If God is the only source of life and we are attached to him and we will be so forever, then we have eternal life. Does that make sense? You're like, all right, all right, that that sounds pretty theological. Okay, hold on. Consider this. Jesus would not have left us on the planet if we did not have a vital role. Unfortunately, many of us need a near-death experience to recognize, wow, I must be here for some reason. Please do not wait for a near-death experience. Let me tell you right now. You are here for a very important purpose. How do I know that? Because God does not need duplication. God does not even ultimately need us, but he wants us and wants to use us in very important ways. You are a unique expression whereby God speaks out into this world. Every single one of us is critical, 
vital to what God is doing. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that we need to be fulfilling that purpose in our life right here, right now, not waiting till we die for something cool to happen. It is not the, I can't wait for heaven and the golden ticket, but for now, man, it's all gonna burn, so who cares, right? As a matter of fact, I kind of think about it this way. If our future is locked and it's awesome and glorious, then shouldn't we be free and joyful to live this one for Jesus to the fullest? Think about it this way. If you had your retirement account locked to an overabundance, money you would never be able to spend in your entire lifetime, if you knew that was waiting for you, would you be so stingy and hanging on to everything you had today? You would not. You would say, I'm going to get so much more. Why would I not spend everything I have on the people around me? More is coming, and that is Christianity. Our future is glorious. Our future is locked. As a matter of fact, our retirement plan is pretty sweet. So why are we so concerned about grasping and clawing and hanging on to what we have today? Why are we not operating in the generosity of the grace we have received, the love we have received, the power we have received, the authority that we have received. Wouldn't it make more sense if everything is going to be awesome that we can live out our potential right here, right now? God has us here for a reason. What's my point? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. The promise of heaven impacts life on earth. The promise of heaven impacts life on earth. I imagine if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard this overused cliche that there are some people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You understand what I'm talking about? Like we need to be able to realize Christianity should make us different today, not later on. Yeah? All right, that's what we're gonna kind of lean into. All right, so we're joining in on a series, part 14, and you're like, okay, well, I gotta catch up. Well, praise God we can do that for you, yeah? We're gonna do it like they do on television, right? <laughs> Here's what happens. Every time you, you kind of binge watch, you always have to watch that intro thing previously on 1 Corinthians. Do <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? We're gonna get a recap for you, all right? We're gonna pick you back up where, where we were at. Here we go. We're reading a 2,000-year-old letter exchange between a founding church pastor and a young church, about five, six years old. The church is in Corinth, which is why it's called Corinthians. That's in modern-day Greece. Paul the apostle had planted the church, and he had been dialoguing back and forth. We don't have their letters to him, but we have some of his letters to them. And when you pick up 2,000-year-old mail, you're kind of trying to figure out what the conversation was. That's what we're ultimately doing here. And what we find out is that this brand new church got fired up for Jesus. They had the Holy Spirit come upon them in a very powerful way. And boy, they were excited. They had spiritual gifts going crazy. They had all this new knowledge. The problem was is they kind of took their cultural arrogance, mushed it together with their Christianity, and they started thinking they were all that. They started pushing back on their pastor and going, ah, I don't know if we really need you as much as we, you think we need you. I think we're good on our own. Because Paul the apostle was kind of telling him this is what Christianity is. And they were like, ah, maybe. 
And they started making some really radical comments and asking some very intriguing questions. Let me just cite kind of what's going to fuel our message today. These were the things they were writing to him. You know, Pastor Paul, your authority is questionable. Are you really an apostle? I mean, you're not like Peter, right? Like Peter's legit, but you're just kind of like another guy. You keep calling yourself an apostle, but you weren't one of the original 12. I think you might be pushing your authority a little bit too much. As a matter of fact, people in our church are now talking about we should support you financially. Well, hold up. Why are we supporting you financially? Like, do we need to question your motives? I mean, I understand you've never asked us for anything, but some people are talking about it. You got the Holy Spirit? I got the Holy Spirit. Why in the world should you get paid and I don't? I don't even understand what we're talking about. Maybe you're in the ministry for the wrong reasons. And you know what? Something I've noticed about you is wherever you go, you kind of morph. You're hanging out with a bunch of Jewish people and you're like, oh, I'm talking about the law. And then all of a sudden you're hanging out with Gentiles and you don't even mention the law. And is this an integrity problem with you? You know, I just have to tell you, Pastor Paul, our freedom that we've found in Jesus, and we appreciate you for introducing us to him. But anyway, we've grown a lot. Our freedom in Jesus has really allowed us to kind of live life to the fullest here. You seem a little bit caught up in some legalism, a little bit caught up in some rules and regulations. We have full freedom. Does it really matter if what we do in this body, if everything's gonna burn? Pastor Paul, I think you're holding us back. Hmm. All right. So that's the dialogue. How is he supposed to respond to that kind of stuff, right? How do you write back a letter and you're talking about God and you're talking about where they need to be? How do you not sound arrogant? How do you reassert your authority? Paul does it masterfully. So what do we do with it? We look at what the original context was. We do our homework, figure out what the principles are, and then wherever we can, we apply them to our lives. You're about to watch a 2,000-year-old letter exchange change your life right here today. That's what the Bible is so incredible for, yeah? Amen. If you haven't already, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's going to be page 957 in those Bibles. I'm reading out of the ESV so we can all read along. And I'm going to be reading a lot, so if you want to kind of follow along with me, that makes it a little bit easier. We're going to begin with just verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pause and talk about it, and we'll kind of do that for the rest of our time. Here we go. Here's what Paul said. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Now, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. All right, let's pause. Last time we were talking two weeks ago in the series, Paul was saying, you know what? There's a bunch of young Christians that maybe haven't sorted through everything yet, and they still got a number of hangups. I would rather put my freedoms aside so they're not stumbling. Okay, now when you say something like that, you always are gonna have critics, right? The critics are always looking for an opening. They're waiting for you to say something that they could then challenge. So you would imagine that when he says something about limiting himself, that's where that attack comes in, where people said, oh, so you're legalistic. 
Oh, you're worried about rules and regulations. Oh, you're stopping from doing something. You know, we have freedom. So what's his first statement? Am I not free? Meaning, guys, I'm not hung up on any of this stuff. I am walking in the fullness of the freedom Jesus bought me on the cross. I know what it is to be forgiven. I know what it is to walk in grace. I have no hangups. I know I am free. Let's just put that out on the table. Any limitations I am doing is not because of rules and regulations. It's because I love people more than my preferences. Man, if I ever hold back on something, it's not because I'm legalistic. It's because I'm trying to be kind. Yeah, I could just walk around and do whatever I wanted to do as if I'm the only one on the planet, but that doesn't sound very loving to me. So yeah, I am self-limiting because people matter more to me than me pushing my rights, yeah? Am I not an apostle? I mean, some of you would ask me that. All right, so let's talk about this. Am I an apostle? By the way, what's an apostle? I mean, if you're brand new to this, what's an apostle? The word in Greek actually just means the sent out ones, meaning ambassadors. But when Jesus was on earth, he had a crew of 12 guys. These guys he called out of his hundreds of disciples, he called these 12 together. He said, you guys are going to be with me day in, day out. They lived with him, practically speaking, for three years. He gave them extra authority because he said, I want you to be my point men out into the world. When people want to know what I'm about, I want them to be able to look at you. Now, in order to demonstrate that you are my crew, I'm going to give you an extra superpower anointing. Those guys were called the twelve. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you're like, yeah, who are, you probably only know two of them. Peter, because he's super popular, right? That's the whole Pope thing. And then Judas, that's the bad guy. That's the betray Jesus guy, right? The guy that didn't quite make it, all right. So how do we call Paul the apostle if he was not one of the original crew, right? Because isn't that their special name? Eh, kinda. Here's Paul's point. Why are they apostles? Because they were personally called by Jesus. Is that what you're telling me? Well, it's funny because I was actually on the road to Damascus when all of a sudden Jesus Christ showed up personally to me, bodily to me, called me into the ministry, has visited me numerous times, caught me up into heaven, talked with me directly, and given me the mandate and the authority that I have. Oh, by the way, you guys saying, oh, but the apostles do fancy miracles. You want to talk about throwing down miracles? Listen, I'll go head to head with Peter every day. There's stuff that is rolling in the Holy Spirit through my ministry is evidence that I am indeed an apostle. Now, people can still challenge me. Here's what I'm telling you. I think it's odd that you're challenging me. Because here's the thing. If I'm going to talk about what proof I have that I'm a legitimate big dog in the kingdom, is you. I literally came in, shared the gospel with you. The Holy Spirit explodes. You guys are now believers. You're walking with God for years. In this thriving, growing church, you're my evidence. If I'm not an apostle to anybody else, I certainly am to you, yeah? That was his argument. Now, when we finish looking at something like that, you go, 
Well, I don't understand. So how do I apply that to my life? Like, I get it. That's interesting information. But what does it have to do with me? Here we go. Got a question for you. What evidence do you have of the Holy Spirit moving in your ministry? Now, this is where we, we default into a defensiveness. Hold up, pastor. Appreciate the question. That was witty. <laughs> However, I am not a paid professional. I am not... Like Paul, hold up, oh, you already blew your argument. Neither was Paul. See, here's the funny thing. We tend to say, well, there's people like Paul who are professional Christians, and then there's just little old me. I work in a cubicle. I work in one of the trades. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm not like Paul. Quick clarification. Yeah, you are. How do we know that? What did Paul do for a living? Anybody remember? He's a tent maker. He was not a paid professional. He worked a day job. This was on the side. Paul the apostle did volunteer work. So this whole business about there's him and there's us, it is incorrect. There's just us. And that changes things. And it was kind of Paul's point. That Paul was saying, hold on, do you know why I'm in Greece right now? Many scholars believe he was there because of the Ismian Games. They're second only to the Olympics. In those games, people would come from all over, and they wanted to set up temporary shelters to watch the sports activities. They needed a tent. So he was in town making tents and doing ministry on the side. Why am I pointing this out? Because we use an excuse an awful lot. Well, I'm not like Pastor Lance who gets paid to do what he does. I'm not like those people on staff at Bridgeway because they get paid to do what they do. I have a day job. And Paul goes, me too. Please don't ever allow there to be a separation in your mind between paid Christianity and non-paid Christianity because there's only one body. You have the same Holy Spirit that Paul does. You're saved by the same Jesus that Paul is. You have the authority and the power that Paul does. So as much as we may say, yeah, but we're different, I don't think you are. So let me ask you the question again. What evidence do you have in your ministry? Because every one of you is a minister. You're all influencing someone. It may just be your kiddos. It may be your friends. It may be your coworkers. But every one of you is a minister. So let me ask you again. What evidence? If someone came to challenge you that you did not have God in your life, what evidence do you have that he is moving in you? Are your neighbors more loved? Is your marriage better? Are your kids more parented? in a godly way. What evidence is there in your life that God is moving in you? Yeah? Pretty tough question, yes? Let's pick it up in verse four. Paul, I'm going to read a long portion here because Paul is making one point. People were questioning him on this whole idea of people being paid to minister. So he has a few things to say. Pick it up in verse four. He says, do we not, meaning my crew, the Paul crew, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife 
as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter. What, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Come on, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Am I just saying things on human authority about earthly stuff? Let's go Bible. Does not the Old Testament law say the same thing? It is written in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What is it? Is God concerned about oxen? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope. The thresher should thresh in hope of what? Sharing in the crop. If we, as ministers, have sown spiritual things into you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others in our society share this rightful claim on you, like the philosophers and the rabbis, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord Jesus himself commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Okay, this is a brilliant layout plan of why ministers should be financially supported. He actually drops six major bomb examples, right? Military examples, agricultural examples, Old Testament examples, and just keeps throwing down, going, listen, ministers have a right and it's important that they are financially supported. This is how it's always gone. But then he says something interesting. But I've never asked for a dime from you. Huh, what's his point? There are different reasons why we should give to our local home church. And you're like, oh, you say we, but you really mean me, huh, Pastor? Nope, hold up. Let me share something weird with you. Do you realize that I am paid by your offering? That whole thing is weird to me. Just kind of creeps me out. So mostly in my life, I just plug my ears and go la, 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 and pretend like it doesn't happen. Because I just think it's an oddity, right? And it is. But here's the weird part about it. I give to Bridgeway rather significantly, right? And you go, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, no, you give to me and I just give back to you. And you're like, shouldn't we just pay you less? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that, it's kind of like, dude, it's coming out of the same account, bro. Like, what do you? I need to give, right? Just reducing it isn't the same as me sacrificing. I think that's very, very important. Do you know the majority of all of our employees give back to Bridgeway? Why? Because this is our home. It's what we do. There are spiritual reasons that we contribute to our home church, and there are practical reasons. Let's talk about some of the spiritual reasons why we all need to contribute to our home church. We use the phrase, we're one body, a lot. 
But in what way are we acting in concert? In what way are we acting together? When we give, it's a supernatural way of becoming one entity to do ministry together. Let me give you a beautiful example. Just found out about this last week. In our women's ministry, which has always been alive and active, 176 of our women here are involved in women's classes this semester. And our leadership came up with the idea and a vision from the Lord that they wanted to do something together practical to minister to the community. Those 176 women raised internally $8,250. Why? Because they heard of a ministry called Hope Boxes. They put their money in and purchased all the equipment for it and put it together and made 330 Hope Boxes. You know what a Hope Box is? There are kiddos in the hospital that may never go home. There are kiddos that have to live out their existence through disease or disability in the hospital. And what hope boxes are is a ministry that says, today you get a treat. Today you get a present. Today you get a craft box that may for a moment take your eyes off the fact that you're always in the hospital. Our women's ministry put together 330 of those to minister, yeah, let's just. That kind of stuff will make you cry. To make the day of 330 kiddos. Now let me ask you a question. When they receive that box, whose name's on it? Bridgeway. But which lady did it? We did it. Collectively, the women became one entity, and that one entity began to love on children, just like Jesus would. When we contribute like that together, we do extraordinary things. We need to give to our church so that our heart is in our church. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your money, you're suddenly invested. If you wanna know what you really care about, look at your checkbook. What are you spending all your money on? That's what you really love. Jesus knew that. We need to contribute to the church so our heart is here. Because here's the thing, let's say, God forbid, that Bridgeway just melts down and ceases to be a church. Now, if you are loosely attached, you would say, oh, that's a bummer. I like that place. But when you have contributed for years, served here, given your money here, this is now our church. And you say phrases like, we built that. That's a whole different level of engagement. Church suddenly becomes very personal. You see, giving becomes a partnership with Jesus. But there's also practical reasons why we give, yeah? Practical reasons. We need to serve those who serve us. Do you realize that my two daughters, who are going to college now, grew up under Kidsway? They went through Kidsway ministry from infancy all the way through. My daughters are different because of our children's ministry in this church. 
So Susie and I know that we had volunteer and paid leaders pouring into our girls, changing the trajectory of their life. So why would we not invest our money here and pay those leaders to help invest into our children? It just makes sense to me. We need to free ministers up so they can do the work to support us, right? That's just practical. We need to be part of the family that contributes to the household. Y'all remember when Banning Liebscher from Jesus Culture came and preached here? My friend Banning, you remember that? He came in and he ta taught the, the most fun message. He said, becoming a part of the church is like Thanksgiving dinner. Whenever you go to Thanksgiving, all the family comes in and everybody has a role. Nobody would feel comfortable going, I'm just here to eat. You guys can do it. Like the meal's what, gonna magically make itself? He said, he goes, in my family, he goes, I'm potato peeler guy, right? Like that's my role. You go in there and you just peel potatoes. But it would be weird to sit on the couch and everyone's like, hey, you gonna chip in? You're like, no, I'm good. What do you mean, no, you're good? We're family here, bro. What do you think we're doing? You don't just sit here and go, no, nope, I'm just here to eat. Appreciate it, right? We all contribute to keep the lights on, keep the chairs comfy, keep it a temperature that's always not what we want. <laughs> now, let me, let me share one piece that's a bit of a soapbox thing for me. It's a bit of a, uh, a key thing that God just pounds into my head all the time. And the reason why I'm telling you this is I believe that it's very important. Paid Christianity jobs are an anomaly. They are not how Christianity is designed. The majority of Christianity is designed for the every man and the every woman. It is designed with a tent-making concept. We work a day job, we volunteer our times, that's how it works. That's how all Christianity has exploded how God moves, and how the world will be changed. We do not leave it to the paid professionals. Paid ministry is an anomaly. If you do not have the calling for it that comes with anointing for it, you'll become a monster. Anytime you mix money into something, it questions motivation. And it will start giving people a bigger head. I'm the one paid. I must be closer to the Lord. I'm now fancier than somebody else. We start creating some weird classism in our heads. We start feeling insulated and isolated. And garbage starts hitting everywhere. Have you ever seen money mess up a minister? Of course you have. If you are not called for it, if you are not anointed for it, you're going to go bad. I have always told people, you got no business being in paid ministry unless God calls you there. Because what it will do to your spirit is really, really messed up, right? Bridgeway is majority-led. Bridgeway is majority-led by lay leaders, by people just like you, volunteers. That's how all the stuff gets done. And you go, well, that's interesting. While we're on the topic, how do you guys decide what roles you're gonna pay for and which ones you don't, right? Because to be honest with you, pastor, I've been volunteering a long time and I would love to get some cash. <laughs> Fair question, yes? Yeah, amen, look at that. I'm getting an amen from sign language. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. <clears throat> 
there's really two practical reasons on why we decide what roles are paid and what roles aren't. Number one, will someone do it for free? Now you would go, pastor, how dare you? You're taking advantage of people. <laughs> you can't give me stink eye, that's not fair. <laughs> now I think you mis misunderstood what I said. Would someone do it for free? Here's what it means. Are the rewards of the ministry sufficient to carry our leader when all the hits and the pain and the wounds come? Will they stay in there? That's what I mean. Second reason why we have a paid position versus not. Does that role require extraordinary accountability? There are certain things you can ask from a employee that you cannot ask from a volunteer. As a matter of fact, you can put demands on them when things really need to get done. If that role has elements that you have to force to be done, you cannot utilize a volunteer. It's not a matter of love or not love or respect or not respect. As a matter of fact, we have massive ministries run at Bridgeway that have tremendous influence, more than our paid people, that are volunteer-led. Our women's ministry is volunteer-led. Our men's ministry is volunteer-led. Our sign language ministry <laughs> is volunteer-led. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pick it up in verse 15. <clears throat> Paul has to address the reason why he's never taken any money. Why? I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if it's not even my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So what then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What was his point? Guys, I have to preach. It's just how I was built. It was how I was made. If I do not preach, Paul said, I feel weird because here's how I view preaching. I'm giving the gospel. I'm setting people free from their bondages. If I don't do that and I go home at night, that just messes with my head. How am I supposed to be peaceful knowing I just left all these people in bondage because I wasn't willing to do something about it? I have to preach. I don't get extra credit for preaching. It's forced upon me. It's just my, my life and my job. But you know where I get extra credit? You know where I can pull an ace out of my sleeve when a critic comes after me and tells me, oh, you're of mixed motives. You know what I really like to do? Is drop a bomb and go, I don't take a dime. I don't want anyone to take that from me because I can always silence my critics that think that I'm in it for the money when I'm not in it for the money. I don't want anyone to take that away. Now, how do we apply that? Simply this. Our personal ministry impact increases when people see that we're going above and beyond to minister to them with personal sacrifice. 
What do I mean? As long as somebody that you're ministering to can see how it benefits you, they wonder whether or not you're legit. But when they see that it costs you to love on them, they go, hmm, maybe that is true. Huh. Pick it up in verse 19. He said, for though I am free from all, although I know all the freedom in Christ, I have made myself a servant, a slave to all people that I might win more of them. Let me give you three examples, he said, verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, meaning the Jews, I became as one under the law, though myself, obviously, I'm not under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21. To those Gentiles, the non-Jews, outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Well, of course, I'm not outside the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ. You know what I mean? That I might win those outside the law. Verse 22. To the weak, the immature Christians, the babies, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some of them. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Context and cultural accommodation is Paul's MO. You gotta read all of his letters that way. What was good for the Ephesians was not good for the Galatians. What was good for the Corinthians was not good for the Philippians. He would morph and change depending on his context. And you go, why are you doing that? Isn't that kind of weird? Like, aren't we supposed to be the same person in every environment? No. You're supposed to have the same heart, but your love will have you morph. Message remains the same, method adjusts. Oh my gosh, Bridgeway keeps changing. First they weren't doing this, now they're doing that. It was this kind of worship, and then it changed and went to this kind of worship. And you know what, they used to do kind of a Sunday school thing, and then they don't do a Sunday school thing. They're always changing. You know why? Because we live in a changing world. And when we start doing stuff that doesn't make sense to people that have never been to church, we start to lose. Because then it's just you and me, Christian to Christian, hanging out in a club. And I think we're built for more than that. So yes, we will continue to morph the method. But guess what? Guess the first time I ever preached, you know what my subject was? The Bible. Guess what it is on the day that I step out of this church? The Bible. It's actually never changed. It's the exact same message, and I will never adjust. It has always been the Bible will always be the Bible. We've always been anchored to Jesus Christ and being Christ-centric. We will always promote the Holy Spirit, and we will always love the Father. That's it. It doesn't matter what other stuff we adjust. It doesn't matter whether or not we wear jeans on stage or don't wear jeans on stage. We know our core, and that will never change. But as far as do we morph to try to minister to people and make sense, yeah. Why? Because Paul's always done that. Here was his point. You guys, I've done some pretty extreme stuff to accommodate. Hey, Timothy, come here for a second. Hey, do you remember that time when we ministered to the Jewish people and I had you get circumcised? 
Timothy's like, it's kind of hard to forget, Paul. <laughs> good, good. Anyway, you can go back to what you're doing. I just think that's funny. Um, <clears throat> he didn't have Titus get circumcised because Titus was ministering to Gentiles. He had Timothy do it because he was ministering to Jews. Why? Because Paul said, you guys, it's practical. I'm coming into a bunch of Jews that are completely baked in Old Testament law, and I'm trying to talk about Jesus. And the whole time, they're looking over at Timothy going, he's not circumcised. And he's like, dude, why are we talking about this? Because it's freaking me out. He's in my house, right? And he's like, it doesn't matter. And they're like, it matters to me. He's like, you know what? I don't need the obstacles. I don't need more problems. Listen, we do what we need to do so that we lower the bar. We can just talk about Jesus. You know, to be honest, every time I hang out with pagans, whenever I hang out with Gentiles, he said, I'm not quoting the Bible. They don't even know the Bible. I'm not going, man, it says in Leviticus. They don't care about Leviticus. So I morph to my environment. Okay, let's make this personal. How do we accommodate? Because we need to accommodate a little bit differently than we are right now. Here's the problem. Many of us morph to our circumstances to remain hidden as Christians. That's not what I'm talking about. And please don't ever tell me, well, my faith is personal. Jesus hung pretty high on the cross for you. So don't tell me that this is a personal thing. It's never personal. What I'm telling you is that we should never morph our integrity. We should never morph just so people don't persecute us. We should never just try to fit in so our lives are easier. What we should do is be Jesus in the moment, but speaking and hanging out in a way that can understand our love. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing. Close it out, verse 24. He said, guys, let me give you some advice. Do you not know that in a race, right, like all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may get that prize. Of course, to do that, every athlete exercises self-control. They train in all things. And they're doing it for a perishable crown. But we're doing it for like eternal stuff. So guys, I don't run aimlessly. I train. I don't box like one just beating the air. I'm training for a fight. I discipline my body and I keep it under control because after preaching to others, I don't want myself to be disqualified. That's good wisdom, yeah? One of the greatest challenges to vibrant Christianity is distractions. I'm quite convinced that if Satan cannot take you out, his number one plan is to nullify you and make you as if you were gone because you're so distracted. The problem with distractions is they can be good things. Do you know how many moms I've talked to and said, hey, how's your spiritual life? Oh man, we can't even get to church. Gosh, the kids, there's so much stuff. I mean, we got sports stuff, we got school stuff. The kids just take up all my time. you can have really, really good things keep you from the best. Because I think actually your greatest gift to your children is your vibrant Christianity. Distractions. Don't call my children distractions. 
okay. <laughs> Christians need to train in order to stay spiritually sharp, to stay in full power and authority. So how are you gonna train to do that? You guys, I, I started ministry with an awful lot of people that are no longer even in Christianity. They used to preach to other people and they don't even walk it anymore. What happened there? Is that because they're worse people? Nope. Is it because they didn't start right? No, actually, they probably started pretty awesome. But somewhere along the line, Satan got him out. And it breaks my heart. One of the most powerful things I learned from John Ortberg's ministry, who was a disciple of Dallas Willard, if you know who that is, is they taught me the concept that Christians rarely need to try harder. They need to train differently. I would suggest that most of you try really, really hard but I wonder whether or not we need to strategically train differently so we can do different stuff. Some of us need to train on longevity so we can leave a legacy and not just bomb out at the end, right? The bottom line for Paul is he always asked himself, what can I do more effectively to be like Jesus in my situation? I think that's a fair question for us to ask every day. Okay, so as I close... In the series, I've been trying to bring up things that we could see through a different lens, right? This discovery idea. And I got a thought for you to carry away today. The thought is this. I would suggest to you that the world is not as against Jesus as we think they are. As a matter of fact, I believe that the world has sufficient pain and difficulty that they long for something true. So why would they not want the healer and the savior? But yet they don't. Why? I think it's us. I think we're the problem. We make it very difficult to become a Christian. And it's usually because we've either allowed our family dysfunction, our church wounds, our legalism, our religiousness, something keeps getting added to the list. Oh, you wanna become a Christian? Oh, all you need to do is, and then we fill out a whole list. I think we got it backwards. I think what we should say is, oh, you wanna become a Christian? Who you need is Jesus. Then just back out slowly. Why? Because that's his business to talk with them about. It's he's the only one that's gonna transform. The minute you make it sound like someone has to clean up all their act and then come to Jesus, you just ruined evangelism. So I wonder, as we go throughout the world as salt and light, in what way can we remove the garbage? Remove the extra obstacles. Remember what Paul said is he said, I morph to remove obstacles. I'm always trying to love in a manner of their love language so they can receive it from me. In what way do we need to start learning the love language of our neighbors? 
and learn the love language of the world around us so they might know that we're not the bad guys, but we actually care about them. Amen? Amen. I'm going to close in prayer. Can I just have the prayer team come on up here as we close out? If you need prayer, that's what the prayer team is here for. Let's wrap up our time. Heavenly Father, in this beautiful holy moment, I just pray that our eyes would be open, that Jesus, you would do things in such a beautiful way. God, if you were in our cubicle, people would flock to you. If you were in our friend group, we probably wouldn't be hurting each other as much as we do. God, if you were in our marriage, it probably wouldn't be something we're merely surviving. God, I just pray that maybe the scales would fall from our eyes, that our minds would be opened up to the idea that there's more. God, you wanna do things with us and remove obstacles for people. You wanna flow through us unhindered. So Holy Spirit, would you just fill us today with a brand new vision on how to do it like you would. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.